All right, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you turn to Genesis chapter 37. That's where we're going to start today, Genesis chapter 37. Today is the last week of Advent. Um, this season has, has flown by. That's not the design of the season. In fact, the design of Advent season is to march slowly to the manger uh, to build this sense of anticipation, but it feels like it's flown by. We've been celebrating, we've been anticipating our celebration of the Incarnation and next week, we're going to have a special opportunity to celebrate the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ on Christmas Day. Don't forget that's happening at 10 a.m., not the regular 1045 time slot that we're used to. 10 a.m., there's going to be no small group Bible study that day, uh, no evening activities. 10 a.m., we hope that you'll be here, that you'll bring your family, uh, that you'll bring your neighbors, that you'll bring your coffee, or buy some from Joe and his friends uh, in the parlor. Uh, wear your pajamas if you need to, whatever you've got to do to be here. Uh, be here to celebrate with your spiritual family, your spiritual family on Christmas morning. You, you may be doing a lot of other things with your physical family, um, but it's important that we gather with our spiritual family. There are two big features of Advent that we've tried to be aware of this season. First, Advent is about identifying with the posture of expectation that marked God's people for thousands of years before the coming of the Messiah. That for thousands of years they anticipated the coming of the Messiah and they were leaning forward, looking for, and expecting him to come. Second, Advent is also about joining with those saints of old in the posture of anticipation and expectation as we, new covenant believers in Jesus, await the promised return of the Messiah. So in the same way as those old covenant saints were looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah, we, New Testament believers, are looking ahead to the return of the Messiah in power and glory and victory. Our sermon series this year is somewhat inspired by Sally Lloyd-Jones' statement in the Jesus Storybook Bible when she says, every story whispers his name. Every story whispers his name, that is the name of Jesus. And we've been trying to look at stories in Genesis to see how those stories whisper the name of Jesus that will help us live with this posture of anticipation and expectation. Last week, we covered Genesis chapter 12 to 22. We covered a great deal of ground in Genesis last week. We saw the rich and sometimes surprising story of Abraham and his son Isaac. And there were four particular things we tried to see in that story. One was the magnificent promise. And we talked about how the long awaited Messiah, the promised son, has come. Jesus is the savior of the world. Number two, we saw the miraculous pregnancy. The miraculous pregnancy, those two old people back in Genesis had a baby. And we thought about how that whispers about the miraculous pregnancy of Mary with the Lord Jesus Christ, how he was born of a virgin by means that no human could accomplish. We also saw this mysterious prescription as the Lord told Abraham to take that promised son that he had finally given to him up on the mountain and sacrifice him there to himself, that seems like a strange request of the Lord. And as we consider the life of Jesus, it seems strange. It seems strange that the Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer, the Savior of the world, would suffer at the hands of men. That he would be arrested and that he would be beaten and that he would be crucified and die. That seems like a strange way, but it is the way, right? It is the way for sinful man to be reconciled to a holy God through the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way, in fact. It's not so strange as we look at it closely. And then finally, we talked about the merciful provision, and we saw that Jesus is the lamb, ultimately the lamb that the Lord has provided. He is the substitute who died in our place. He died for our sins. He was buried, and he was raised the third day. And so tonight, we'll gather together in this room at 6 o'clock, and we will sing, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Behold the Lamb of God takes away our sin, reconciles us to the Father. Well, this week, we're going to cover even more ground in Genesis as we look at the twists and turns in the story of the life of Joseph. 
and the other sons of Jacob. We're going to hear several whispers of Jesus' name as we cover Genesis chapter 37 through chapter 50. And listen, next week, we, 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 like, I feel like for the last four weeks, we've been like leaning in and we've been saying, how can I hear the name of Jesus whispered in these stories? And sometimes the dots are hard to connect. Sometimes it feels like a little bit of a stretch to hear that that is whispering about the name of Jesus. And next week, we are not going to have to whisper. We will hear the name of Jesus shouted in Matthew chapter 1 as that angel tells Joseph to name his son Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Like there won't be dots to connect. It'll just be crystal clear and we will celebrate together next week. I'm looking forward to it. And I hope you are as well. Well, let's pray together before we dive into Genesis 37. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are listening for the whispered name of Jesus in this passage today. And we pray that as you have over the last few weeks, that you would help us to hear as we consider this beloved son who was hated by his brothers, who was sold for pieces of silver, who was falsely accused, who suffered faithfully, and who you used even through his suffering to save many people. Help us to hear about Jesus. Help us to hear about Jesus who did that better, fuller, perfectly. Help us to hear about Jesus today and rejoice at the salvation brought to us through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we pray in his name. Amen. So as we walk through the story of Joseph, I, I hope you are as familiar with it as I am. Um, part of the reason why I'm familiar with the story of Joseph is that when I was a teenager at Dorsville Baptist, growing up in the youth group there, our music minister, Tommy Taylor, um, was all about a show. And uh, he had us as teenagers perform Andrew Lloyd Webber's Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And if you're not familiar with that Broadway musical, it tells the entire story of Joseph with a musical flair. And a variety of musical flares. Like there's a Calypso song. Um, there's a country western song. What other? Laura was, uh, Laura was the featured uh, narrator in, in, the, in, that, in that show when I was a kid. I was a Harry Ishmaelite. I'll talk about them in a little while. That was my role. No speaking lines or singing lines. But I got to ride in on a dirt bike. Yeah, that was pretty cool. They wouldn't let me start the dirt bike. I had to push it, but I was on a dirt bike. So I'm familiar with that story because of a musical, and that makes me a little bit sad that I'm not familiar with it because I've studied the Bible, um, but I'm thankful uh, for all the different methods God uses to work his word into our hearts, and I uh, hope that you have a plan in 2023 uh, to be taking in God's word so that it works down deep in your heart, so that you're familiar with it, so that you can see Jesus. That's, that's one of the things that I get from this, is that as I consider the story of Joseph, I can see Jesus clearly um, because I'm familiar with Joseph's story. So look at it in Genesis chapter 37. The first thing I want you to notice in the story of Joseph that whispers about Jesus is that Joseph was beloved of his father. He was the beloved son of his father. Look at it in Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 3. This will be a little bit of like Bible drill today, and I love that, that your heads are down. If you don't have your Bible with you or have one close to you, this will be on the screen uh, so you can follow along. Genesis chapter 37, verse 3 says, Now Israel, uh, that is another name for Jacob. Um, Jacob is also called Israel. Uh, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic or a multicolored coat. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. So Joseph was beloved of his father. Why? Well, it's interesting. We could talk about it for a long time. It's not because he was the last son 
uh, of, of Jacob. He, he wasn't. Benjamin was the last son. Uh, some scholars say that Joseph was the favorite because he was closest to his father in his old age. As Jacob got to be an old man, maybe Joseph was kind of his right-hand companion. The other sons were, were maybe grown and, and gone at that point. Maybe it's because he was the first son with Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Uh, that's a complicated thing that we probably don't need to go into the week before Christmas. Um, so I'll just leave that for another day. Whatever the reason was, though, what we learn is that he was the favored and beloved son. And when we think about that, if we just think about that, we can obviously already hear the whisper about Jesus. Does not the Father say, this is my beloved Son of the Lord Jesus Christ? Look at it in Matthew chapter 3. Two times in Matthew's gospel, the Father speaks from heaven about his love for his Son. Once at his baptism, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, and once at the transfiguration, closer to the end of his earthly ministry. Matthew chapter 3 speaks of his baptism. In verse 16, it says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my Son, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then again in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, it says, While he was still speaking, that's Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, as we consider the story of Joseph, this idea that Joseph was the beloved son of his father might not seem significant as we first read through it. But when we're looking for, we're listening for whispers of the name of Jesus in that story, we're learning um, that Jesus is ultimately the beloved son of the father in whom the father is well pleased. Joseph is a shadow or a whisper, a type, as scholars would say, of the Lord Jesus to come who is fuller and greater and marvelous. Joseph, secondly, was hated by his brothers. He was beloved of the father and hated by his brothers, partly because he was a tattletale. But maybe there's more going on than that. Maybe his brothers recognized that he was indeed more righteous than they. Maybe his brothers recognized, maybe because he tattles on his, on his brothers, they recognize that he's not the one causing trouble. They are. Look at it in Genesis chapter 37, verse 5. Oh, uh, actually, verse 1. It says, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, maybe mark that for later, um, just, to, just to kind of uh, get, a, get a glimpse of how much time passes in this story. He's 17 years old here when we're introduced to him. He was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. So Joseph and some of his other brothers are out watching over flocks, and uh, he comes back and has bad things to say about them, probably because they were doing bad things, and he wasn't, but that doesn't score you any points with your brothers, right? Tattle on your brothers, you're going to end up crossways with them. He was a tattletale. Maybe he was more righteous than them. He also had some interesting dreams that he told them about. Basically, these dreams predicted that one day they would bow down before him. Genesis 37, starting in verse 5. Look at it. It says, Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up, and stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gather round and bow down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? 
or are you really going to rule over us? Right? So if you have a dream like that, and your brothers already don't like you very much, and you tell them that dream that you've had, not only that one, but he had another one similar to it about the sun and moon and stars, and he told them that dream as well, which had the same basic message that one day you will all bow down to me, that's going to cause them to hate you even more. All right, And that's what we're trying to see here, that Joseph was hated by his brothers. In fact, they hated him so much that they decided to kill him. This was not just, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be mean to you, I'm going to rough you up, I'm going to bully you. No, they intended to end his life. They hated him so much that they wanted him dead and gone. Look at it in verse 18 of Genesis 37. It says, when they saw him, that is, the brothers saw Joseph from a distance, before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. That is very much language that we see in the life of Jesus. They plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Now then let us come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. I'm wanting you to see here the second thing is that Joseph was hated by his brothers. And in this hatred by his own kinsmen, we should be able to hear a whisper of Jesus, right? That Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. In fact, that's the way John talks about it in chapter 1 verse 10. When he says he, that's Jesus, was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. As we read the story of Jesus in the Gospels, we learn that he experienced more opposition from Jewish leadership, from his very own people. He received more opposition from them than from any other group. And in fact, arguably the only reason why the Romans got against him was because of the Jewish leadership being against him. So just as Joseph was hated by his brothers, so was Jesus in a greater way. Joseph was hated by his brothers and he was sold for pieces of silver. Joseph was sold for pieces of silver. Look at it in Genesis 37. It says, and Judah said to his brothers, now mark that down. Judah is one of the sons of Jacob. Judah is one of Joseph's brothers. That's going to be super important later on in the story. And Judah is one who tries in some ways to save his brother. He says, what profit is it, is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. That's the part I was. The, the song, goes, song goes, could you use a slave, you hairy bunch of Ishmaelites? And they're like a motorcycle gang coming through town. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up, that is, out of the pit, lifted Joseph out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they bought, brought Joseph into Egypt. So Joseph was sold for these 20 pieces of silver. He was sold as a slave to the Ishmaelites. And then the Ishmaelites, once they got to Egypt, sold him off to Potiphar. Now, the scripture doesn't say how many pieces of silver, but no doubt for some silver, he was sold to Potiphar as well. And so I want us just to quickly hear the whisper of Jesus. A whisper about Jesus in this. Jesus, who was hated by his brothers and sold for pieces of silver, was betrayed for pieces of silver. Look at it in Matthew chapter 26. It says, then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. 
From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Joseph was sold for pieces of silver, just as Jesus was sold for pieces of silver because he was hated by his brothers. Joseph was also wrongfully accused. Joseph was sold to Potiphar, and he was successful in Potiphar's house. He rose in the ranks of Potiphar's house while he was in Egypt. We can read about this in Genesis chapter 39, verse 2. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. Let me stop there and say you might want to mark that, that the Lord was with Joseph. In fact, that's one of the refrains we see throughout the story of Joseph is, man, this is a story of highs and lows. It's got some serious highs and some serious lows. And one of the things we're going to learn is that every step of the way, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer of his entire house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. Joseph was wrongfully accused. It sounds like things are going well at this point in Potiphar's house. He's rising in the ranks. He's uh, in charge of everything that Potiphar owns. And then Potiphar's wife gets a glimpse of Joseph and sees that he's a good-looking young man. And she tries to seduce him. That's an interesting part of Andrew Lloyd Webber's thing. Catches Potiphar's wife's eye. She tries to seduce him. But Joseph is righteous. And he's honorable. And even as this powerful woman tries to seduce him, He runs away. He flees. And let's just stop there and make a secondary application. Maybe the application that you need most today is that when you are facing temptation, when you are facing sexual temptation in particular, this is the thing to do. Follow Joseph and run away. In fact, when we read it in the text in Genesis, he runs out so quickly that she has a hold of his cloak and keeps it as he runs out. He wants to get far away and fast from this sexual temptation because he does not want to sin against her. He does not want to sin against his master, but he makes clear that he does not want to sin against the Lord in doing such a thing. Oh, friends, when you are faced with sexual temptation, run away. Run away as far and as fast as you can. Joseph is righteous. He's honorable. He flees from Mrs. Potiphar's presence, but Mrs. Potiphar falsely accuses him to her husband says that he pursued her, that he was aggressive toward her even. And Mr. Potiphar, in a rage, has him thrown into prison. Look at Genesis 39, verse 20. So Joseph's master took him and put him in the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. And God gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. I wonder if we can hear the whisper of Jesus here. As we see Joseph living righteously, yet being falsely accused. Can you hear something of the whisper of Jesus? That he lived righteously, did not sin, and yet was accused by men, falsely accused by them. Peter talked about this recently. We've studied it in here recently in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, For you have been called to this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Look at verse 22. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Can you hear that whispered in the story of Joseph? Can can you hear how Joseph was doing the right thing and was falsely accused? And rather than fighting for his rights, rather than standing up, he, he simply trusted the Lord. As he was confined into that prison, he trusted the Lord and the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him in that prison. It doesn't say the Lord was with him and so he didn't go to jail. It doesn't say the Lord was with him and so he didn't suffer. It says in the midst of the jail, in the midst of the prison, in the midst of the suffering, the Lord was with him. Do you see how that whispers about Jesus? Yeah, I think it does. Let's fill in some gaps now as we move forward in the story of Joseph. While he was in the jail, he interpreted some dreams for some fellow prisoners. There was a baker for the Pharaoh and the cupbearer for Pharaoh, and they had some dreams. And they tell these dreams to Joseph, and Joseph is able to interpret them. And he says, the baker is going to die. The baker is going to be hanged. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. But he says, the cupbearer is going to be restored to his place with the king. He's going to be standing right next to the king at every meal, sipping his wine before the king sips his. He's going to be right there. And Joseph says, when you're there, remember me. Remember remember my kindness to you. Remember my abilities. Remember how the Lord is with me. When you're there with the king and you have his ear, remember me. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Well, most of it is exactly what happened. The cupbearer is rightly restored. He is restored to his position with the king. But he forgets all about Joseph. He forgets all about Joseph once he's there. And then the Pharaoh has some dreams of his own. The kids thought that was really funny. When, when I, I didn't, wasn't expecting that. Did you hear them chuckle when Sally Lloyd-Jones described the fat cows gobbling up the skinny cows? They thought that was pretty clever and pretty funny. And Pharaoh has this dream about seven fat cows coming up out of the Nile. And then seven skinny, measly-looking, gross cows come up and they eat the seven fat cows. And he has a similar thing about stalks of corn uh, that do the same thing. Two dreams, but no one can interpret them. And then suddenly the cupbearer, who has been restored to the king of Pharaoh, or the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, says, Ah, I know a guy, I know a guy from when I was in jail who interprets dreams. And Pharaoh says, Go get him. And Joseph comes into the Pharaoh's court, hears the dreams, and he says, I will tell you what these dreams mean. It's actually just one dream, it's one message, one message from God for you. He says, You're going to have seven years. Egypt is going to experience seven years of amazing crops. Bumper crops are on their way. Seven years of plenty, loads of food, and tons of hay. That's the way it's going to go. And then, right after that, seven years of famine. Seven years of drought, seven years of famine. No one's going to have anything to eat. Joseph says, this is what the dreams mean. And then he says, here's what you should do. Here's what you should do, Pharaoh. You should store up all the grain that you collect, all the grain that you harvest during those seven years. Store it up so that you can ration it out during the seven years of famine. And then everyone, everyone will be taken care of. The Lord has given you a blessing in teaching you these things. And Pharaoh says, man, that sounds like a really good idea. Not only have you told me the truth about what my dreams mean, you've given me a plan to get through this hard time. And he makes Joseph second in command of the entire country. Second most powerful man on the planet at that point. In command, second only to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
And then the famine hits. They have the seven years of plenty. Joseph builds cities to store away the food, food during those times. And then the famine comes. And it hits hard. And Joseph's brothers over in Canaan are also hit hard. Those 11 brothers who hated him. Those 11 brothers who wanted to kill him. Those 11 brothers who sold him into slavery for some pieces of silver. They experience the famine as well. And they come up to Egypt to get some food. And when they get to Egypt, guess who greets them? The prince. The prince who's in charge of the whole operation. Who's also their brother that they hated. Their brother whom they tried to kill. Their brother whom they sold into slavery. And he knows it, but they don't. And they come and they bow down before him. They bow down before him to beg for some food, thus fulfilling the dreams that nearly got him killed in the first place. That brings you up to speed in the story. Here's what we want to learn from this last bit. Number one, Joseph suffered, but the Lord was with him. Joseph suffered, but the Lord was with him. That's a refrain throughout the story of Joseph in Genesis. It'd be good exercise sometime for you to go back and read this whole story. It'll take you a while because it's a lot of text. But go back and read this whole story and circle or underline every time it says the Lord was with him. What I want you to see is that the Lord was with him in the pit. The Lord was with him in the prison. The Lord was with him in Potiphar's house. The Lord was with him in the palace of Egypt. The Lord was with him every step of the way. Joseph suffered, but the Lord was with him. Joseph suffered, and the Lord was accomplishing his purpose through that suffering. Right? That's the second thing I want you to see. Joseph suffered, and the Lord was with him. Joseph suffered, and the Lord was accomplishing his purposes through that suffering. It's not as if the Lord was just looking at that suffering and saying, ooh, that stinks, what am I going to do about that? How am I going to make that somehow come out good? No, no, no. The Lord was accomplishing something of his purpose through that suffering. Maybe Joseph couldn't see it at the time, but Joseph trusted the Lord. I shared this story in a much shorter version at the community Thanksgiving service a few weeks ago. And I shared this quote from John Piper that I think fits with this text. Piper one time famously said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. That's really true. And I think that would be helpful as you walk through this next year. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. You may be aware of three of them. So let's be thankful for the work of God that we are aware of, those three things that we are aware of. Let's be super thankful that we can see his hand at work. And in the 10,000 things we can't see, Let's be thankful there as well that the Lord is at work. Look at it in the text. Look at it in the text how God was accomplishing his purposes through the suffering of Joseph. Look at Genesis 45. Genesis 45 verse 4. This is one of the two kind of climax moments in Joseph's whole story. Genesis 45 verse 4 says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Like in my notes, that last bit is super bold. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God is not some passive responder to the situation. God is the active initiator of all of this. 
he is involved in all of this. He says, God sent me before you to preserve life. And that's not a one-off statement in the scriptures. In fact, the psalmist says the same thing in Psalm 105. Of this very story, he says in Psalm 105, verse 16, and he called for a famine upon the land. The he there is God. Who brought the famine? God brought the famine. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. God was doing this from the very beginning. God was accomplishing, through Joseph's sufferings, his purposes in the world. Now listen, that whispers of the Lord Jesus Christ. God was accomplishing, through his suffering, his purposes for the world. God was in charge of all of it. Not just reacting to events outside of his control. No, God is the one who is in control, working all things according to the counsel of his will. And it says it again in Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. This is after Jacob has died, once the whole family has moved to Egypt. In chapter 50, verse 19, this is what we read. But Joseph said to them, his brothers, Don't be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And so he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In my notes, the last part of verse 20 is big and bold. God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. I'm wanting you to see here that the Lord was with Joseph in his suffering, and through his suffering, God was accomplishing his purposes in the world. They meant it for evil. The brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it. It's the same word. He meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So John Piper is right. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. You may be aware of three of them. God was actively working in Joseph's suffering, using even his mistreatment at the hand of his own brothers to accomplish his purposes. You think Joseph understood all that at the time? When his brother says, here comes the dreamer, let's kill him. No, no, let's, let's sell him to slavery. Let's sell him to Potiphar. Let's put him in jail. Let's make him in charge of evil. Do you think he understood everything that was going on in the midst of all that? No, but the Lord knew exactly what he was doing. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. God was actively at work in Joseph's suffering, using even that mistreatment at the hands of his own brothers to accomplish his good purpose. And look, what is his good purpose? What is God accomplishing through Joseph's suffering? What is God doing through Joseph's suffering? Two things, at least. <laughs> 10,000 things, if Piper's right. But two things that we can see clearly. Number one, he was saving Joseph's own family. Through Joseph's suffering, he was saving Joseph's own family. It is reasonable to say that if Joseph had not been in that Egyptian jail, then Jacob and his sons would have died in the famine. Is that fair? Like we, we can like run the whole thing back, reverse engineer it. The famine comes and the only reason why Jacob and his sons are saved is because Joseph has been in jail in Egypt and is now second in command only to Pharaoh. 
And you trace that back, all of those things are tied to the brothers' hatred of Joseph and they're selling him into slavery. They're desired to kill him and they're selling him into slavery. If that had not happened, the whole family would have died in that famine. God was working. God was working and he says it to preserve life, to spare many, to preserve this family. God was arranging and orchestrating all of this to save that family over there in Canaan. Many others in the process, but to save that family. Piper said, he had been 17 years old when they sold him into slavery. And now when he tells them who he is, he's 39 years old. 22 years had gone by. They are stunned. They tried to get rid of the dreamer, and in getting rid of him, they fulfilled his dreams. The brothers are bowing down at last to Joseph. Piper adds, you cannot escape God's purposes. God is using the hatred of his own family, of Joseph, to spare that very family. Their betrayal of him is what ultimately saves them? Is that wild? Is that like God to work in such a mysterious way? That sounds oddly familiar to me. One of the things that God is doing through Joseph's suffering is saving that family. But if we zoom out, the other thing we see clearly is that God is saving the world through that suffering and through suffering that will come after that. Zoom out a little bit and you will see that the Savior came to the world through the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, because the tribe of Judah is spared through Joseph's suffering, through God's faithfulness in Joseph's suffering. Remember I said that the Judah, Judah is the one, right, who speaks up and says, oh, let's not kill him, let's throw him into the pit. Judah's that one. And Jesus comes from Judah's line. And if Joseph hadn't been in Egypt, Judah would have died. God was doing way more than just sparing that family. He was sparing the whole world. The Savior of the world came into the world. The tribe of Judah is spared so that the Lion of Judah can come. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. This is, this is you don't have to work to see this. That God is up to way more than just sparing an old man and his 11 sons in Canaan. In all of this faithfulness, in all of this suffering, he's actually working to accomplish the salvation of men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation through the Lion of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Revelation chapter 5. See if these dots connect. I pray that God will connect them for us all. Revelation chapter 5 is a scene that we're familiar with. I hope we can see it in this context today. It says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on a throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What is God doing way back there in Genesis? Is he's bringing forth the lion from the tribe of Judah who has come and he has conquered. He has conquered through his death. Behold a lamb standing as if slain. He has died and now lives again. He has come, the lion has come and he has conquered. And friends, he is coming again and he will conquer finally and fully and completely. Think about this. If Joseph had died at the hands of his brothers and his brothers had died in the seven years of famine, then we would not have the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ from the tribe of Judah, who happens to be Joseph's brother. God was indeed working to preserve many people alive. Not just from famine for physical life, but to give them eternal life through the Messiah. Give them eternal life through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ generations later. See what was going on there in Genesis chapter 37 through 50 is really about the gospel. So Sally Lloyd-Jones is right when she says one day God would send another prince, a young prince whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father, his brothers would hate him and want him dead. He'd be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened to this young prince, even the bad things, to do something good, to forgive the sins of the whole world. God was doing God was doing more than Joseph could ever have imagined. So application number one today, John Piper was right. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. You may be aware of three of them. So let's be thankful for the work of God that we are aware of. So I'll ask you, how can you see God at work in your life right now? What are the two or three things you can see clearly that God is doing right now? that he is orchestrating and structuring. And maybe, maybe you see them just a little bit in the rearview mirror. Maybe you can see them going on right now. What are those two or three things that you can obviously tell that God is doing in your life right now? Man, thank him for those things. Rejoice in those things. Let's be thankful for the work of God that we are aware of. And let's be thankful for the work of God that we are not aware of. I want you to know that you can trust that in every moment, he's doing more than you could ever imagine. I'm confident that some of you feel like you're in the pit. Right now, you're in the pit. Your brothers hate you. They have betrayed you. They are getting ready to sell you into slavery. Some of you are in the prison. You've been falsely accused and wrongly confined. You're suffering. Some of you are in the palace. 
You've, you've risen to the height of power and prestige. Some of you are in the pit and the prison, and some of you are in the palace. You can't tell what the Lord is doing. I want you to know he's doing something. He's doing more than you could ever imagine. And he is using whatever is going on in your life to accomplish his purpose in the world. He's not off his throne. He's not looking down and saying, ooh, what am I going to do about that? How am I going to twist that for good? No, 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 he's bigger than that. He is wiser than that. He is sovereign over all things and working all things to accomplish his purpose in the world. And that's for your good as well. Trust him. You can trust him. He's at work and he is good. And the second big application is praise the Lord for the work of salvation that he accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In all of this story of Joseph, we hear the whisper of the name of Jesus. Joseph said to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve life. Can you hear Jesus saying that in a bigger way? Can you hear Jesus saying that in a, in a fuller way? God sent me to preserve life. Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Can you hear Jesus saying that in a fuller way? You meant it for evil. P Peter says it. Peter says it on behalf of, of all mankind. What you intended for evil, you evil men nailed him to the cross. And God used that cross, intended that cross for the salvation of the world. Praise the Lord for the work of salvation he accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose birth we will celebrate next week. So I invite you today, repent of your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, be saved. That's the only hope of salvation. Repent and believe. And go tell the world. I'm so glad we sang that song today. Go tell it on the mountain. Over the hills and everywhere. Jesus Christ is born. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ was raised. And Jesus Christ saves. Let's tell them the whole story. Stand with me and pray. Father, thank you for, for your sovereign rule over everything on the planet. And thank you for your good purpose to rescue and redeem a people for yourself from every tribe and tongue and nation. To redeem by the blood of your son, Jesus, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Thank you. That good news has been preached to us. Thank you that you have given faith so that we believe in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have given repentance so that we've turned from our sins. Help us to be loud in our proclamation of the gospel to the world around us. And God, we pray in these moments and in the moments to come that you'll do the same kind of work in others as you've done in us that you would open their eyes to your holiness and their sinfulness, open their eyes to Christ dying in their place, give them faith to trust in Christ, give them repentance to turn from sins, and save them for your own glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.